Welcome to the Evidence-Based Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Kathy Thompson. I'm a nurse infopreneur and creator of the website nursingeducationexpert.com. I am also faculty at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and Indiana University in Indianapolis. Welcome. This is part one of the podcast series, An Introduction to Clinical Statistics for Evidence-Based Practice. In this part, we'll begin by talking about the process of evidence-based practice. We'll also talk about concepts in clinical epidemiology as laying the foundation for evidence-based practice, and we'll start with discussing morbidity or frequency measures in epidemiology. The measures we're going to talk about are incidence, prevalence, and incidence density. So let's get started. The point of this module is to familiarize you with the language and the purpose of clinical epidemiology, risks, diagnostic probabilities, incidence rates, etc. And unless you have an epidemiology background, a couple of weeks of study is not enough for mastery of the content. However, this module should give you a good start to be able to interpret the studies that you will be reading for your practice. I'm not an expert in clinical epidemiology, and I can't promise I'll be able to answer all of your questions, but I'll do my best. And at the very least, I'll give you resources so that you can look up some of the answers yourselves. My goal is that you get a general idea of what the measures being discussed mean, how you'd interpret the findings when reading a study, and how you may use them in your practice setting. For those of you who are less clinical and leaning toward more administrative and management roles, you will still have to understand the terminology and concepts and what it means to be an evidence-based practitioner, since part of your responsibility may be for overall care delivery and or in designing tools and processes to support evidence-based patient care. Clinical epidemiology concepts are the basis for many medical decisions, but we are nurses, so why do we have to know about clinical epidemiology? Well, because as advanced practice nurses, APNs, we do diagnose and treat. We give advice and we inform. So we should have working knowledge of the vocabulary and the concepts involved in clinical studies. I've tried to present the concepts with clinical examples so that they make sense to us as APNs. Then we in turn can help our patients make sense of the sometimes overwhelming amount of data with which they are presented. In general, a good epidemiology text will be helpful. Part one of this podcast is going to discuss some basic concepts in clinical epidemiology, and we're going to also talk about morbidity measures, in particular incidence, prevalence, and incidence density. We'll also touch on the types of research designs that provide incidence and prevalence data. As APNs, we're interested in keeping up to date with the literature so that we can deliver the most efficacious, efficient, effective, and therefore quality care to our patients and their families. Those of you who are considering administrative or management positions will need to keep up with the literature too, so that you can assess your own staff's knowledge and care delivery, implement best practices in administration and management, and support the value of EBP as an organizational imperative. Most likely the majority of the studies you will be reading will be quantitative in nature, and surely many will be designs that present risks and benefits of treatment, diagnostic testing, and or preventive measures. Your role will be to critically appraise the studies for robustness of research design and methods, appropriateness of data collection and analytic methods, and interpretation of the findings for use in your practice setting. In interpreting the findings, you will have to use the information presented to decide which data are useful and which are useless, prioritize and plan care for your patient, Compare the level of disease among populations you're interested in, evaluate the effect of interventions, and to help direct health policy decisions. Studies that provide information about the health and illness in populations fall under the category of epidemiologic studies. Before we get started talking about the concepts in particular, I'd like to make sure that we have a good foundation 
and what evidence-based practice is. So as you probably know from your text readings, evidence-based practice has evolved from evidence-based medicine into evidence-based practice and evidence-based healthcare. Sackett, who is considered one of the fathers of evidence-based practice, defined evidence-based practice as the explicit, judicious, and conscientious use of current best evidence from medical care research to make decisions about medical care of individuals. Evidence-based practice incorporates relevant and valid evidence, clinical expertise of the healthcare provider, patient circumstances, and patient preferences. Greenhall said that evidence-based medicine, or evidence-based practice for our case, is the use of mathematical estimates of the risk of benefit and harm, which are derived from high-quality research on population samples to inform clinical decision-making in the diagnosis, investigation, or management of individual patients. Evidence-based practice is based on the principles and the practice of clinical epidemiology. You'll see in the schematic on the handout that I have the combination of best evidence, clinical expertise, and patient preferences in a diagram. But what I want you to notice is that when we talk about best evidence, we're talking not only research studies, but we're talking about all of the evidence that we have at our disposal that we can use to make good decisions for our patients and for our organizations. Do note, though, that the heart of evidence-based practice is the critical appraisal and then the use of research studies. So research is still the heart of evidence-based practice, even though we use a lot of different evidence sources in order to to inform our decision-making. Some of you might say, why do we have to appraise studies when they're published? So among the misconceptions about published research is that all published research is good research, and that's just not true. Just because something is published does not mean that the methods were rigorously appraised or that the published findings can be easily translated into practice. So Even though many of the prestigious journals do have a review process, it's still, the the studies still have to be appraised by the reader. And so don't take somebody else's word for whether or not the published research is going to be valuable for your own practice. Knowledge of the research process alone does not ensure translation of that knowledge into practice. So we have the basic concepts of evidence-based practice. Well, the process of evidence-based practice consists of six steps. Many texts will tell you five steps because they take the assessment piece and the ask piece and put those together. The idea being that you need to be able to assess a situation first before you can ask what what we call an answerable question. So I've just pulled out the assessment piece and put that at the top of the model. So of course you are assessing a clinical situation. You might be assessing your unit. You might be assessing a department. You may be assessing an organization. But you have to start with assessment. So once you've done an assessment, then you need to ask an answerable question. You have to ask the question though in a format that makes it more effective or more easy for you to search the literature to find the answer to that question. So there's a bunch of components and a couple of different strategies that we use when we're trying to ask questions in order to search the literature. That's beyond the scope of this particular podcast right now, but just keep in mind that we're trying to ask a question that makes it easy for us to search the literature. Once we ask the question and we get results from our literature database, then you have to go through the results and you have to look at which of the studies that are coming up are relevant to the question that you want to ask. So there's a process of going through that list to be able to acquire the most relevant literature. Once you have a list of the literature that you want to use to answer your question, then you need to be able to pull those studies down. 
And then you go through the process of appraisal. We'll talk a little bit about some of the steps of the appraisal for evidence-based practice in just a moment. Once you've appraised the study and or studies and you've decided that the research is, is good and that the methods are rigorous and therefore your results are valid and if your results are important, then you can apply those results to your patient population. Assuming, of course, that the study you're reading is addressing a patient population that is similar to the population that you are trying to care for. Once you apply the research results, then you audit the process. So you're, you're auditing whether or not the interventions worked. You're auditing your own process as far as what can you do better the next time. And then the process starts all over again. In 1951, mathematical statistician Samuel S. Wilkes was giving his presidential address to the American Statistical Association, and he was paraphrasing Herbert G. Wells from his book, Mankind in the Making. And he made the statement that statistical thinking will one day be as necessary for efficient citizenship as the ability to read and write. The full quote from H.G. Wells reads, The great body of physical science, a great deal of essential fact of financial science, and endless social and political problems are only accessible and only thinkable to those who have had a sound training in mathematical analysis. And the time may not be very remote when it will be understood that for complete initiation as an efficient citizen of one of the new great complex worldwide states that are now developing, it is as necessary to be able to compute, to think in averages and maxima and minima, as it is now to be able to read and write. So this quote is important because evidence-based practice is all about statistical thinking. And we need to understand some of these basic statistical principles in order to be able to interpret the findings from the research studies that we read. So what we're going to talk about is clinical epidemiology concepts. We're going to talk about morbidity measures, which are also known as frequency measures, and these are incidence, prevalence, and incidence density. Research designs that provide us with incidence and prevalence data. And then in the second part of this series, we're going to talk about measures of clinical significance, looking at differences in group outcomes. We will talk about risks, benefits, and effect sizes, and we'll also look at how we interpret the effectiveness of interventions. For example, using numbers needed to treat, number needed to harm, number needed to screen, etc., as well as some other measures of clinical significance. The third part of this series, we will look at the accuracy of diagnostic tests. So we'll look at sensitivity and specificity and likelihood ratios. We'll talk about what those mean and how to use them to interpret research findings. So you might be asking, what does clinical epidemiology have to do with evidence-based practice? We'll know that clinical epidemiology and EBP are definitely linked, that EBP uses the concepts from clinical epidemiology in order to make decisions about patient care. We need to understand these concepts so that we can interpret statistics related to making diagnostic decisions. For example, is test A or test B the best test to diagnose disease X, for example? We need to be able to interpret the stats related to making treatment decisions. In other words, which intervention has the greatest effectiveness? Prognostic decisions. These are things like what are the chances that this patient will have a good quality of life? And financial decisions. An example is does staffing with an all-RN staff have a benefit or not? As advanced clinicians, when you are critiquing or critically appraising clinical studies, some of the questions you need to be asking yourself are, did the researchers use the correct statistics for their study? And you will be able to interpret this based on the knowledge that you've had from your research and your statistic courses. Once you decide 
if they use the correct statistics for your for their study, then you have to also ask yourself, did they interpret the findings correctly? So this comes from looking at the narrative that the authors are providing you and comparing those to the tables they're providing. You would be surprised, actually, how many times there are discrepancies between what the authors say and what is listed in the tables. So the interpretation of results, again, are going to help us differentiate useful from useless data. They will help us compare the level of disease among populations, help direct health policy decisions. We'll be able to use the results to prioritize and to plan health care, and then to evaluate the effectiveness of those interventions. So let's look a little bit at just the introduction to epidemiology. The root of the word epidemiology is from the Greek word epidemic. Epi means upon, demos means people, and logos is thought or the study of. Jekyll, Katz, Elmore, and Wilde defined epidemiology as the study of factors that determine the occurrence and distribution of disease in a population. Observations of the population provides us with knowledge about the types of health problems that occur in specific populations. These are counted as disease occurrence. They provide us with data about the identification of the risk factors for disease. They also give us the basis of recommendations for public health. In addition, healthcare professional use of knowledge of distribution of health and illness states in combination with the knowledge of the individual patient, for example, their physical exam and the screening results, are helpful for care planning. These data provide us with ways to prevent or limit consequences of illness and disabilities and strategies to maximize a patient's state of health. The definition of clinical epidemiology by Fletcher and Fletcher is that clinical epidemiology is the science of making predictions about individual patients by counting clinical events in groups of similar patients and using strong scientific methods to ensure that the predictions are accurate. Clinical epidemiology guides clinical decision-making for the individual patient using the best evidence possible. In other words, it helps guide evidence-based practice. So let's look at a clinical scenario. Consider the following patient who enters your clinic. You have a 72-year-old man with slowly progressive urinary frequency, hesitancy, and dribbling. A digital rectal examination shows a symmetrically enlarged prostate gland. Urinary flow measurements show a reduction in urine flow rate. The patient's serum PSA level is not elevated. So the clinician makes a diagnosis of benign prostatic hypertrophy, or BPH. So now what? How do the clinician and the patient make a decision about appropriate treatment? So they have to weigh the risks and benefits of the various treatment options versus no treatment. So they need accurate information. They're going to need probabilities of disease and, and the probability of clinical improvement the possibility that there might be deterioration in their health. Is there a cure? What are the side effects of the treatment versus no treatment? And is there a possibility of death? All of these types of information are going to help the clinician and the patient answer these clinical questions and help decide on treatment. Your patient's treatment options include surgery with the benefit of immediate relief, but with the concomitant risks of urinary incontinence or death during the operation. The option of medical therapy with drugs includes benefits of symptom improvement, though not immediate, and the risks of worsening symptoms and or obstructive renal disease. To make an informed decision, the patient needs accurate information on the disease probabilities, the possibilities of improvement or deterioration, the side effects of medication and treatment, and the risk of death. I gave you a chart from an article by Edwards et al. that has to do with how to present information to your patients. And just know when you're speaking in probabilities and risks and possibilities that sometimes just using words is not going to be very helpful to the patient. But a lot of times having a visual will be more helpful in showing the patient what the risk of harm might be or the risk of consequences, including death. 
So showing a patient a visual of risks and consequences might be a good way to help them understand what the risks and the benefits of treatment are. The terminology of epidemiology measures is important for for the understanding of the results of epidemiologic studies. The measures used in epidemiology are summaries of the frequency of the outcomes or the events of interest. Outcomes such as disease states, injury and death, also known as mortality, are commonly measured in epidemiologic studies. Morbidity measures are also known as frequency measures. Morbidity measures show how common a disease, symptom, or problem is in the population. These measures are also known as occurrence rates. Incidence and prevalence are frequency measures that provide clinically relevant measures and are foundational to the understanding of clinical epidemiology. Clinically relevant measures are expressed as fractions, where the numerator is the number of people experiencing the event or the outcome or the number of cases, for example, and the denominator is the number of people in whom the event could have occurred, so the total number of people in the population. Because we're talking about populations, it's important that you understand that for the most part, populations are fairly stable over the short term. Populations are considered dynamic in that an accurate count of new cases is available with an estimation of the population at risk. So the dynamic population, you can see that over the short term, people move into a community, people are born into a community, and over the short term, you have people who die and people who've moved out of a community. So in that perspective, the population stay fairly stable. Incidence cases help us estimate one's risk of getting a specific disease or condition. Incidence is defined as the number of new cases, and that's important, the number of new cases of illness during a specified time period in a given population, or the number of new outcomes such as symptoms, disability, or death in patients with a disease. I actually like how Jekyll et al. describe incidents. They describe it as the number of transitions from well to ill, from uninjured to injured, or from alive to dead during the study duration. Samples for incident studies are groups in which the disease or outcome of interest have not been expressed. The groups are initially free of the outcome of interest and then develop the condition over a given time period. Now, that's just really important for you to hear again. So we're talking about groups that do not have whatever the outcome of interest is that you are looking for, the development of cancer or heart failure or a certain symptom, etc. So they initially start out without the outcome of interest and then they develop or a certain number develop the condition over a given time period. So incidence provides an estimate of the probability or an estimate of the risk that a patient will develop the problem during a given period of time. Again, the incidence rate is the number of new problems or outcomes or events during a given period of time divided by the total population at risk. A lot of times epidemiologists will describe the total population in a unit called person time. And we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. So the denominator is total population at risk, and it's usually in units of what they call person hyphen time. Note that the incidence is determined out of the total number of people at risk, not the total population. So once a person has the outcome you're interested in, during the time you're measuring the outcome, they are no longer at risk of getting that outcome. They have it. Therefore, the population of risk decreases by one in this particular example. 
Problems noted with the documentation of incident cases includes the fact that multiple cases in the same person will inflate incidence numbers. So for example, cold episodes in the same person will get reported multiple times, right? But it's only one person. So that would increase or inflate incidence numbers. And incidence rates may be incomparable due to different sources of data. So some incidence data uses government data, others are based on physician or hospital diagnoses, and there are a variety of other methods that might be used to gather incidence data. Prevalence is frequently more helpful than incidence to determine the impact of a problem within a community and to assist in health or program planning. Prevalence is defined as the proportion of persons with a particular disease within a given population at a given point in time. So when we're looking at the population at a given point in time, that's known as point prevalence. And if we're looking at the population within a given period of time, that's known as period prevalence. Prevalence is the number of people who currently have the condition in the total population. So it's a proportion of persons with a particular disease within a given population at either a given point of time or a given period of time. Prevalence rates are cumulative percentages and they include incidence rates from past years. Prevalence is dependent on the incidence of the condition and how long the problem lasts. Illnesses with short natural histories may not be counted in the prevalence rate if the patient dies or is cured before the rate is recorded. As well, illnesses with long-term consequences count until the patient is cured, dies, or leaves the study population. So prevalence rate is defined as the number of patients with the problem at a designated time divided by the total population. So note that prevalence includes total population. Total population includes all the people who were just diagnosed with the outcome you're interested in, as well as the people who still have the outcome who were diagnosed last year or two years ago or five years ago, etc. Problems with prevalence data are, again, how the data may be collected. Prevalence rate reporting is affected by illnesses with long-term morbidity and counts of cases that go into remission but are not cured. So in those cases, you might see 5- or 10-year estimated prevalence rates being reported. Prevalence is also calculated as incidence times the duration of the disease. So that kind of gives you an estimate of the societal burden of disease. And duration is actually prevalence divided by incidence. So Goethe said, knowing is not enough, we must apply. Willing is not enough, we must do. Let's do some practice with some of these concepts so that you get a better understanding of how they're used. Here's our scenario. We're going to talk about this town called Anytown. And this is a fictitious town with 100 people who live there, and everyone is disease-free at the start of the time we're going to start looking at incidences and prevalence of disease X. Let's say disease X is a disease that once you have it, you can't get it again. Having the disease and being cured from it guarantees future immunity from the disease. So in the first year that we are, are, that we are counting incidence and prevalence rates, let's say four people develop disease X. Let's figure out the incidence and the prevalence rates. So the incidence is the number of new cases of this particular disease. We just said four people in year one develop disease X. And there are 100 people in the population. The incidence rate for the first year of this disease, 4 over 100, or 4%. Now let's look at the prevalence. The prevalence rate is the number of patients with the problem during a designated time. So we have in year one, four patients with the problem out of the total 
population. In year one, the prevalence is also four over 100. So let's say in year two, five new people develop disease X. Let's say that four people from year one are still alive and all 100 people from the population are still alive and still living in any town. So now let's look at what the incidence and the prevalence would be. The incidence rate is the number of new cases. So in year two, five people developed disease X divided by the total population at risk. So now the incidence rate is five divided by 96. Now note that the denominator for the incidence rate is not 100 anymore. Incidence is the number of new cases among the population at risk. Because four people from the original 100 were stricken with the disease in year one, these people are no longer at risk in year two. They already have the disease. Therefore, the denominator decreases with the number of cases from the previous year. So 100 minus the four people who contracted the disease in year one leaves 96 people as the population at risk for developing the disease. So incidence is 5 divided by 96. Now the prevalence is 9 divided by 100. So how do we figure that? That is the four people who had disease X from year 1 plus the five new people who developed disease X in year 2. So 4 plus 5 is 9 and that is over the total population. The prevalence denominator doesn't change because the population remained at a total of 100. The numerator includes the incident cases from the previous years and the number of people who are still, who are still alive and living with the disease. So again, four from year one and still alive plus five new cases equals nine. So let's look at year three. Well, in year three, we had six new cases. Two people from year one are still alive, and the five people from year two are still alive with the disease. Two people from year one were cured, and all 100 people from the population are still alive and still living in town. So now the incidence is six divided by 91, and the prevalence is 13 divided by 100. So let's see how we figured that out. In the incidence, the denominator was 96 the year before, right? Minus the five cases that developed in year two. So 96 minus five equals 91 people now left at risk. So the incidence is six new cases over 91 people at risk. Prevalence is calculated as four people with the disease from year one plus five people from year two plus six new cases from year three, so that's 15, minus the two who were cured. From year one, they no longer have the disease, that, so the prevalence is 13 over 100. Hopefully, that makes some sense. Okay, now let's go back. So in year three, we have six new cases. Two of the cases from year one and five of the cases from year two are still alive with the disease. Two of the cases, however, from year one are cured. And all 100 people from the population are still alive and in town. So now the incidence rate is six divided by 91. And we got that because the year before, the population at risk was 96, but then five people got the disease in year two. So 96 minus five is 91 people now left at risk. The prevalence rate is 13, and that's calculated because we add, uh, and you can do it two ways. You can, uh, I just put down that four people from year one and five people from year two, plus the six new cases, that equals 15, but then two of those people from year one were cured, so that's 13 minus, that's 15 minus two, 
they no longer have the disease, and I made the caveat that they also have future immunity, so therefore the prevalence is 13 out of 100, 100 people, the total population. So let's look at the effects of disease duration on incidence and prevalence and some, some examples from that. Again, when you have illnesses of brief durations, the, this increases the likelihood that the patient won't be counted or therefore would be missed in a prevalence study, okay? So for example, 25 to 40% of all deaths from coronary artery disease occur within 24 hours of symptom onset in people without any prior evidence of the disease. The prevalence study would not have ca caught those people and therefore would underestimate the true burden of coronary artery disease. Other short duration curable conditions, for example, the common cold, typically will have a high incidence and a low prevalence because we would add them to the incidence rate but the number of people who actually have a cold at any given time is fairly low. Therefore, they might be missed from the prevalence data that might take place over a longer period of time. Diseases with longer durations, for example, chronic diseases such as Crohn's disease or diabetes, these will typically demonstrate a low incidence but a high prevalence. For example, the incidence of Crohn's disease is 2 to 7 people per 100,000 population per year. So that's a fairly small incidence, isn't it? However, Crohn's disease is a chronic disease, and the prevalence of Crohn's is greater than 100 per 100,000 population. The newly diagnosed are added to the incidence rates and the prevalence rates in year one, but then to the prevalence rates for subsequent years due to a longer survival time. So here's another example, and I actually modified this from a scenario in Melnick and Finout Overholt's evidence-based practice book. So here are some examples of how prevalence and incident numbers can help you make decisions or help you use the data to justify funding for a particular project or plan. Let's say we're looking at asthma among school-aged children in any town county. We're going to do prevalence and we're going to look at incidence. We diagnose children who have an audible wheeze with asthma. And let's say we do a cross-sectional survey to see how many children during the week of May 7th have asthma in any town county. To figure out the prevalence, we want to look at the proportion of persons with a particular disease. And in this case, we said an audible wheeze is going to be diagnosed as asthma within a given population. And we identified the population as school-aged children in this county during a given time. And in this case, we did a one-time survey the first week of May. And the prevalence rate we got was 10%. Now let's compare that to what the incidence rate of asthma is in this particular county. So let's say that the true rate or the incidence of asthma among school-aged children in this county over the last three years is 45 new cases. So if the incidence of asthma was 36 new cases three years ago, and now when we look at the incidence of new cases of asthma in this year, we're looking at 45 new cases, do you see that there's been an increase in the incidence of asthma in this county by 25% in the last three years? So which occurrence rate do you want to use now to try to justify the money to support this countywide school-based asthma management plan that you would like to start? Do you want to use the prevalence rate of 10% or do you want to use the increase in the incidence rate of asthma by 25%? And I think clearly most of you are going to say that the increase of the incidence of asthma by 25% is a more compelling number. Let's look at one more prevalence example. Remember again that prevalence is the number of patients with the disease or condition at a particular time point divided by the number of individuals examined or the total population. 
there was a study done that looked at incontinence. And in this example, 6,139 individuals completed a questionnaire on incontinence. 6,139 is the number of people examined. That's the denominator, right? Of the 6,139 people, 519 currently suffered incontinence. 519 people had the condition at the particular time point of the study. So that would be the numerator. So therefore, the prevalence of incontinence in this population is 519 divided by 6,139, and that equals 0.085. Now, to report these findings, it's pretty unwieldy to say the prevalence is 0.085. Prevalence is a percentage. So you take that result of that proportion, 0.085, you multiply it by 100, and you get 8.5%, or you can round up and say, or a 9% prevalence of incontinence in this study. If prevalence is low, a common way of expressing prevalence is as the number of cases per 100,000 of the population. So it's easier and it's more understandable to the patient or the audience who's reading this study to state the result as 66 cases per 100,000 people, for example, than to say the prevalence is 0.00066. In the example I just gave you, it would be easier than to state the result as 8,500 cases per 100,000 people than to say the prevalence is 0.085. When you're trying to plan or propose health services in a community or in a unit, in a hospital, in an organization, and you want to know how many services are needed, then again, the incidence and the prevalence of the condition of interest would be the data you would want to use to help make your case. For example, you want to plan medical services for patients with motor neuron disease. Now, the incidence of this disease is very small, so healthcare services may not seem to be needed if only incidence cases were used to determine the needs of this population. However, patients with motor neuron disease have an average survival of three to five years after diagnosis. Patients suffer progressive symptoms and difficulties during this period. Therefore, to plan care for patients with this particular disease process, prevalence cases would be a more compelling number upon which to base the needs for for services. Hopefully this is starting to make some sense. So prevalence and incidence are important concepts that you need to have at least a basic understanding of. So now let's talk about incidence density. In populations that are not fixed, incidence density is the appropriate measure to measure population frequency. Incidence density is used to count the number of new cases emerging in an ever-changing population, one in which people are under study and susceptible for varying lengths of time. Instead of total population at risk, the denominator is calculated as person-time at risk for a specified time period. Each person then contributes a variable amount of time depending on when they entered the study. For example, in an ongoing longitudinal study of risk factors for stroke, a patient who enters the study at its inception, let's say 10 years ago, and is still being followed because they have not had the outcome event, in this case a stroke, that person contributes 10 person years, person hyphen years, to the denominator. A patient who enrolled in a study one year ago therefore followed for one year without an outcome event, has not developed a stroke in one year, contributes only one person year to the denominator. Many longitudinal studies use this measure to account for patients moving into and out of the study population. So now let's talk a little bit about research designs that provide incidence and prevalence data. Incidence studies are also called cohort studies, longitudinal studies, prospective studies, meaning we follow the patients forward in time, and also called historical or retrospective cohort studies. In other words, we're using past records. 
The appropriate clinical questions that we ask for incident studies are questions about prognosis, questions about treatment, harm, causation, or incidence. Cohorts are groups of people who share a common trait when they're first gathered and then followed over time. Cohorts do not have the condition or the disease or the symptom in question when they are first assembled. So they start off as a population free of disease. A cohort has to, though, be able to experience the event of interest. So for example, a cervical cancer study only should include women and only include those women who have a cervix. So that should make sense, right? In addition, the period of time observed should allow for the event to be expressed. For example, that means you have to allow for the natural history of the disease. If you're following patients to see if certain risk factors cause cancer, the follow-up period has to be long enough for the disease that you're interested in to develop. And there should be a full period of follow-up for every member of the cohort. When you're critiquing research reports, you need to compare the number of people completing the study to the number of people who were initially enrolled in the study. And you always want to know, the author should always provide the detail as to how many subjects were lost to follow up and give you a reason why. And that will allow you to make a determination as to whether the attrition rate probably did not affect the outcome or if the attrition rate possibly had a large effect on the outcome. So if there's a large number of people missing, that obviously can affect your results. In your handout, there's a cohort study of risk diagram. So you can see the population and the cohort are all these people who have something in common and they start off without the disease or without the symptom or whatever in question, right? And then you follow them forward in time to see if they develop the disease, yes or no. You're also looking during that time at who in the cohort was exposed to the risk factor you're interested in and how many of them developed the disease and how many did not develop the disease. And then there's also going in that cohort going to be people who have not been exposed to the risk factor and you're going to look to see how many of them developed the disease and how many of them did not de develop the disease. Cohort studies use incidences then to, to assess risk. So we're looking at those who were exposed to the risk factor and those who were not exposed. And then what we do is we look at the ratio. We compare the incidence of disease of the exposed group to the unexposed group. And that is a risk ratio. So that's how we're going to look at the relative risk and the absolute risk of disease in cohorts. Many of important medical risk data have been gathered using cohort methodology. I'm sure you've heard of the Framingham study. This is a famous and important cohort study that provided information on risk factors for coronary heart disease. The study started in 1948 in Framingham, Massachusetts, and its purpose was to identify factors associated with increased risk of coronary heart disease. A representative sample of 5,209 men and women aged 30 to 59 were selected from about 10,000 people of that age living in Framingham. When first examined, 5,124 people were free of coronary heart disease and therefore considered the population at risk. This cohort was examined biennially for 30 years for evidence of coronary heart disease. Risk factors for coronary heart disease identified from this study were hypertension, high cholesterol, cigarette smoking, glucose intolerance, and left ventricular hypertrophy. The Framingham Offspring Study was started in 1971 and studied adult children of the original study participants and their spouses. In 2002 and 2003, the Omni study enrolled the grandchildren of this original cohort and is now in progress. 
Prevalence or cross-sectional studies are also used in epidemiology. The prevalence ratio is the prevalence of the exposed group or capital P little e divided by the prevalence of the unexposed group, capital P little u. And so the prevalence ratio may be reported in some epidemiologic studies. The methodology for prevalence or cross-sectional studies, the sample is defined, the population is examined at only one time point. Now, this is really important. This is only one time. They're not following these people for a long period of time. This is not a longitudinal study. Non-cases are those without disease at the time of measurement, and exposure is also measured at the same time as they're measuring the disease measurements. The relative risk of exposure is, ex is estimated using the odds ratio, and we'll talk about that statistical measure in the uh, second part of this podcast series. Cross-sectional studies are good for obtaining information about what to expect in different clinical situations. They help provide a guide to planning, health services, and serve as a basis for diagnostic testing to obtain sensitivity, specificity, likelihood ratios, and pretest probabilities. And we'll get to those in part three of this podcast series. Cross-sectional studies are not used for trying to figure out cause and effect. You cannot use prevalence studies for cause and effect. A study by Kessler et al. in 2003 asked the question, what is the prevalence of major depressive disorder, or MDD, among adults in the U.S.? The sample was a representative sample of all households in the 48 contiguous states, Residents who were 18 years and older were interviewed by trained interviewers who did not have clinical experience using a validated tool, the WHO, which is the World Health Organization Composite International Diagnostic Interview Depression Scale, or the CIDI. The sample consisted of 9,090 respondents. The lifetime prevalence of MDD was 16.2% with a 95% confidence interval of 15.1 to 17.3. And the 12-month prevalence rate was 6.6%, with a 95% confidence interval of 5.9 to 7.3. Other studies have showed point prevalence estimates comparable to the 12-month prevalence rate reported by Kessler et al., in addition, these studies have reported that the prevalence of minor depression is two times that of major depression. Clinicians, therefore, can use these rates to screen for depression, plan for community health care needs, and improve the treatment for individual patients. This is the end of part one. Part two of this podcast will look at measures of clinical significance, looking at differences in group outcomes. Thanks for listening. You can find the show notes at nursingeducationexpert.com forward slash EBP forward slash 001. Please share a comment about this episode at the same link. The Evidence-Based Practice Podcast is a production of nursingeducationexpert.com and is sponsored by CJT Consulting and Education. Have a great week.